What I did was, I was lonely between four and seven at night, and I thought that's the only time I really want other people. So I started to go to a nursing home at that time at night, because I thought, well, there's got to be lonelier people there at that time of night, right? So I went in and I told stories, and um, I learned so much from that experience, you know, because, well, first off, it's kind of like visiting the ghost of Christmas future. <laughs> Because you, you walk in and there's some old lady in a wheelchair going, Get me out of here! <laughs> and they're a very tough crowd, I gotta say. You know what I mean? Like, if they don't like you, get me the fuck back to my room. <laughs> gotta watch my toenails turn yellow. So I'm telling a story. I'm up at the front. I'm telling a story. I've got them. They're just really into it. And all of a sudden, this one lady comes up. And she's like this. And she's like this. And she's just... And in the front row, there's a man. And he just yells at her, Irene, for God's sakes, you ruin everything. And they're married. And... And they're very mean to Irene, I have to say, like they really are, because she started pulling her skirt up over her head. Now, when you're in kindergarten, that's cute, like every pictures, but you know, when you're 80 something, people, they were mean, they were very mean. I've, I've played biker bars that were easier than this. Uh, they're like, cover up your cooch, Irene. And I'm like, you're body shaming, Irene. Hi there, I'm Deborah Kimmett, and I'm coming to you again from the beach area in Toronto. <laughs> I was listening to that clip, and uh, that clip that you just heard was from my comedy album called Downward Facing Broad. I have no more ideas for titles, so I call everything Downward Facing Broad. And what's so funny about that story, I, I just was in my early 50s, and so much was changing. You know, my kids had left home, so I was an empty nester, and my husband got boated off the island, so I was a divorcee. And then my hormones were packing up and leaving too. So I had to find something new and I really didn't know who I was. I mean, I'd focused my whole life on mothering and being a wife. And I had this idea that I wanted to give back. Now, as you know from that story, my giving back was kind of like through a local lens. But today's guest, well, she may have started local, but she became global pretty quickly. It actually started in 2008. She was in Tanzania. She felt this deep pull within herself to give back in a different way. She's an international development facilitator, humanitarian, and kick-ass drummer. And she's my friend, Kathy Cleary. Kathy, glad to see you. Glad you made it to our podcast, Downward Facing Broad. And first off, let's just talk about how you and I met. Do you remember? In person? Well, first I saw you do a comedy show here in Kingston, but we didn't meet in person, but you had me laughing out, outrageously. But yes, we met, I think it was in Tamworth at, at a writing workshop. That no, you were it was uh, yeah. Yarker. Yarker. Yarker for the day, a day yeah. workshop. Yes. Yeah. We had it in that uh, tea room. Yes, that's yeah. right. You're from the Kingston area. I am. Listeners, that's about two and a half hours east of Toronto. And before we get into your whole life, 
I want to start back at the beginning. Where did you uh, grow up? I mostly grew up from age seven in Long Sioux, which is just a little bit west of Cornwall, a couple hours east of Kingston. And I spent, yeah, my elementary school and high school, I went to Cornwall. And then I went to London for one brief year and then back to Cornwall uh, to um, finish college. You know, I was on tour once for Brockville and they wanted to give me this fancy hotel, but I had to pay for it. So I decided to stay at the Long Sioux Motel. <laughs> my God, one of the worst nights of my life. I They had plastic over everything and I... Okay, when I went in to check in, three people that own the hotel, motel, they were in bed next to the check-in desk. Oh it was goodness. so cold. They had no heat. It was the most grueling night of my life. It was People were doing crack cocaine. The police came. I'm locked in my room with plastic hat on my head because I thought I'd get bed bugs. Oh, but Long Sioux is a beautiful place. It's a very nice place. I have never seen anybody doing crack cocaine there, but hey. Oh my gosh. But Long Sioux is a nice place. No, I'm kidding. It's not a Long Sioux motel is what we're really talking about here. So you grew up there. And um, what was it like in your childhood, like living in a smaller community like that? How did that shape you as a person? Oh my goodness. I, I lived in a very small community and went to the Catholic church. So that certainly shaped me as a person. A strong sense, I would say, living in a small community, strong sense of belonging. And everyone, of course, knew everyone else's business. Uh, but as a kid, you don't really, you don't notice things like that. But I remember my parents talking about, you know, who was doing what with whom. And um, But it was, a, it was a nice, I mean, it was a good place to grow up. It was a nice place, but very sheltered. Yeah. Very, yeah, very sheltered. So were you in a big family, came from a big family or small family? Uh, I have uh, two sisters and a brother. My youngest sister's 16 years younger than me. Um, and my other two siblings are closer in age. So, yeah, it's, I'd say a biggish family. Are you, are you the oldest? I am the oldest. Yeah, I'm the, the oldest. oldest the bossy one. No, it's, it's called leadership qualities. It's yes, not that's one. right. It is now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They don't think of it that way, though, do they? No. Um, when you had this Catholic family, did I know Catholicism shaped you, sometimes not always positively, but was there part of being raised that way that impacted you later in life? I would say absolutely. I mean, it, Im Im it impacts me in my, uh, still in my belief system today, I'll find myself thinking, about things I believed then and, and maybe still believe today as a result of have being raised that way. But also, um, you know, it's, it's what gave me fodder for questioning, I guess. To, so eventually, and that took some time, I was closer to my thirties before I started asking, uh, asking some questions. And as you know, I'm no longer uh, a practicing Catholic, but it's certainly, stayed with state has stayed with me and, and will my whole life. It's, it's something that uh, is ingrained deeply in my DNA. 
Yeah, it's kind of like the Hotel California. You can check out <laughs> and never leave. You're just stuck. That's right. You have no idea. Yeah. When, what good quality did you inherit from your mom or your dad and your dad, I should say? I think from my uh, from my mom, I inherited kindness. So the the wanting to be kind uh, to others. From my dad, I would be more um, ambition. You know, when I finished my uh, my honors undergraduate degree, the first thing my father said to me was, so when will you be going for your master's? So there was always that, you know, what's what's the next step? What's the next step? And that certainly has uh, has stayed with me my whole life. And obviously he wanted you to have education. Oh, for sure. And I went to university in London and dropped out the first year, which was very disappointing for my parents and went back uh, after I had my children. So when my children were very young, I went back to Queen's University. So that that pleased my dad to no end. So here's a question. Do you remember your first paycheck? I do. I was working as a lifeguard in Long Sioux at the Long Sioux Beach. I was 15. But do I remember how much it was? No, just to remember how it felt to be paid. Oh, yes. It was very exciting to be paid. I had to share that job with another uh, another girl in the in the village. So I worked the July shift and she worked the August shift. <laughs> it's funny, though, that first time you get money, you feel this independence, like there's a way out of this small community. That's what I felt. I got my first $100. It was $2 an hour being a dishwasher. And um, I had to do the takeout counter for ice cream. And I remember just thinking I died and gone to heaven. I had so much money. <laughs> and then my parents wanted to boss me around. And I was like, no, I'm not going to listen to you. I've got cash now. They're like, well, you've only got 100 bucks, so you're not going that far. But, yeah. <laughs> you don't realize that at the time, though. You think it's a lot of money will take you far. Yeah. So here's the thing. Catholic, small town, average-sized family, parents that were kind, encouraging in education. When we do the memoir writing, sometimes we talk about there's always an act of disobedience that someone needs to be able to get past the values of their family and the community they grew up in. And I think in women, it's almost discouraged, like you're not supposed to be disobedient. But do you remember a couple of acts of disobedience that pushed you more into your own life? Yeah, I would say that I was, you know, I was a very, I grew up being a pretty good girl until I hit, you know, age 15. And then it, there was this, this thought that just a minute, maybe there's another way. (laughs) Um, So certainly I remember, of course, you know, drinking that uh, Mickey of Southern Comfort with my girlfriends and stumbling home from the arena and meeting my parents halfway uh, because they were coming to go someplace else on the road. And um, my mother told me she was going to take me home and pour me a drink if I wanted to drink that badly. And then the next morning going off to candy striping at the, at the local hospital as my, you know, teenage volunteer work. So that, I, I guess that was a, that was a disobedience. And when I went away to university, I mean, it was just a free for all, right? All of a sudden you don't have to come home. You don't have to tell anybody where you're going. 
So certainly that was, uh, was a time of lots of mischief, I suppose. But let's put it in a good way of it, like the disobedience of leaving the church, for instance. You got married in the church? Yeah, I was. I got married in the church. I. Uh, but when you said you weren't going to go to church anymore, what age were you then? I would have been uh, close to thirty. So my kids were baptized in the church, and you know I'd been sort of questioning. I, I had gone back to, to university to do women's studies and sociology, so was being asked a lot of you know, to think critically about my life, to, to write papers about um, interesting topics of feminism and how, how religion affected me. And so, you know, through all that questioning, um, I, I started to think to myself, you know, what do I really believe? And, and then honestly, the, you know, it was a time where there was, it was the first, we were first hearing about uh, abuse in the church and, and, you know, priests being moved around, not fired or put in jail. Uh, And that was kind of the icing on the cake for me. It was just, I I did not want to belong to an organization that would not put children uh, at the forefront. So for me, that was. What price did you pay for that with your family, like your mom? Yeah, that was hard. Um, my my mom, uh, she, she found that very hard. I, I, I think, you know, I was so angry. Um, I when I presented it to my family, I presented it in kind of just a throw it in your face kind of way, which was really hard. And my parents remained Catholic, and my mom's alive today and, and still a practicing Catholic. So. That was it was very hard for her and hard for me. So I, I would say we were estranged for a while. I mean, we weren't really talking. Things are much better between us now, but it, it was a difficult it was a difficult time. Yeah. And when you disobey, whether it be with religion or doing things against the grain that, you know, were part of your calling in life, how did you what kind of how did you find your in, internal strength, so to speak? Where did you get that strength from? Was it like a sense of this is who I am and I got to follow my passion? Or did you have a spiritual life? Or how did that go? You know, leaving the church, I've always had a spiritual life. So I think because I was raised Catholic and and was quite um, involved in the church for a very long time, that sense of spirituality or, or the need to believe or the want to belong has stayed with me. I just wonder sometimes, because when I see people who leave the church and can't fit in, we're going to get into your story here in a minute. I always find that they've done something in their life so much bigger they were called to do. And I want to get into that calling for you. That kind of like you had to break out of the stereotype of what you were raised with in order to meet what you needed to do. So do you want to tell me how you got led to start going to Africa? Sure. I had been working here in Kingston for probably 20 years in community development, so doing a lot of work around homelessness and housing and food security. And then I was uh, coordinating a program, a provincial program uh, for harm reduction for injection drug users, and we had some tourniquets that we needed to donate. And I thought, oh, how wouldn't it be interesting if I could find an organization that traveled to Africa 
because in 1984, when my son was born, and I was sitting in front of the television. It was the first time where we were seeing images of the famine in Ethiopia. And at that time, I remember thinking if, if I didn't have a newborn, I would just go there. I had no idea what I would do or how I could help, but I thought surely I could, I could do something to be helpful. So I found an organization, the Canada Africa Community Health Alliance, and uh, to donate the tourniquets to, and then went on their website and found out they did medical missions to Tanzania. So I signed up and I was very nervous as I had never done that kind of traveling before. Uh, But I signed up and found myself in Tanzania and was just completely, um, well, I was, I was there on the first day of the medical mission and my job was to weigh, to weigh the people as they were coming in and do blood pressures so that the doctors would have the information that they needed. And I remember just standing there feeling like I was being useful in some way and that a dream that I had thought I would never have had, I I had it now. And that was in 2008. And I've been going to um, both Tanzania and the Democratic Republic of Congo um, in the years that have followed. So tell me, you went there um, and where did you meet that little baby that uh, you wrote about in class? Nema. So I was leading a team of physicians and nurses, pharmacists. We were in a, a town village called Maridi on the island of Ukerewe in Lake Victoria. And the aunt um, who was caring for this baby brought the baby to the clinic. And one of the do- I was out and about you know, managing and organizing. And one of the doctors came up to me and said, you know, we have a a baby that's, that's in trouble. Um, She's four months old and she weighs, well, we can't even get her on the scale. She's not, she's not, we had only adult scales and to stand with her on the scale didn't really move the, the scale. So she was less than two pounds. And I said to that to that doctor, just give me a minute. And I, I had to go into the other room because I had been at the birth of my sister's child just the month before, and that baby weighed 10 pounds at birth. And this was a four-month-old who weighed less than 10 pounds. And it just, it, it, it took me right to my knees. I The, 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 the comparison of the two children um, so I had to, anyway, I had to gather myself cause I was a team leader and we got that baby, uh, baby Nema to the hospital and we got her, um, working with the local people. So when I say we, I don't mean just the Canadians, but the local people and we got her to the mainland, um, and got her on, you know, um, n- nourishing nutritional formula. She was, she was a fighter, uh, I can pull up a picture of her in my mind right now, big, big eyes. And when we left, uh, her aunt was still there with her at the hospital, but baby Nama died a couple of, um, a couple of months later. She just, her life had just been too difficult. Now this is interesting for me because you've told this story in class and what everybody in the class was stunned by is that was more, 
a thing that motivated you more to return? Most of us would have said, I can't have my heart broken like that. But what does, what happens to you that you are driven to come back to a place where basically you might not win when you help, right? Yeah, absolutely. You, you, you don't always win. I, I think the motivation to go back is, is this kind of sense that the world should be fair. I don't believe in fairness because I don't think the world is fair, but deep inside me, I think it should be fair. And so I go back because I think maybe there's something I can do even for one person to, to make it just a little bit more fair uh, so that they might, you know, that person like baby Nama, although it, you know, for her, it didn't work might have an opportunity. But we had another little boy who was very sick with, uh, with a, a kind of cancer. And again, we didn't save his life, but we did get him so that he was feeling better and he got to go to school and he got to experience that. And he passed away two years later, but he would not have had that if we hadn't been able to work with the local community. So so I, I mean, I take comfort to know that that he had a better quality of life than he might have had, even though it was short. So you started to. When did we meet then? And the Angelina Jolie thing happened. Was that 2016? <laughs> yeah, I think maybe maybe 2017. Tell us about. First off, you have a saying. What is it? Once you know something. Once you know something, you can no longer retreat into the abyss of unconsciousness. Awareness must provoke action. That's a very hard, uh, you've really put your money where your mouth is with that, and literally your money, because you. this is not easy to keep going there and helping. You've had to raise money and function, you know, you just continue to have to raise money to help. It's not just, I get to help, I have to have money to do it. So 2017, just paint us a little picture of where you're at and what part of Africa you're in at that point. Sure. So in 2017, I was working with women in the Democratic Republic of Congo. They were in the city of Goma, which is right on the border of Rwanda and the DR Congo. They were women that um, Heather Haynes, the international artist and I had gone to meet in 2014. And when I met the first group of women, they told me stories of such horrific violence um, that when Heather and I left, I I thought I, I needed to do something to help them even just a little bit. And they said, so I said to them, I'll send money. And they said, no, if you send money, you know, it was the if you give a person a fish, you feed them for the day, but if you teach them to fish. So their idea was to start a training center. So with them, I started that training center and uh, that training center is still running today. We've graduated 65 women in in seamstress training and 10 women in basket weaving. We just started another group of 16 women just started last week uh, training as seamstresses. So the training center is something that I started in uh, in the Congo, and that was what I um, how I happened to be able to meet Angelina Jolie. Yes, 
we just should say that that had a profound effect on you and you and I kind of connected on a deeper level after that. So let's tell that story. So I had been working with the women and and I was I go to TIFF every year and I'd been doing, of course, writing classes with Deb for a number of years. Uh, and we chat, Deb and I would chat back and forth, you and I would chat back and forth. And so I went to TIFF and Angelina was doing a, a small um, question and answer. So I went to that. But before I went, my husband said, you should make a sign. And I was like, I'm not making a sign. <laughs> I'll look like such a... He's like, no, no, you should make a sign. So I was like, all right. So I made this sign that said, you know, working with women in DR Congo, need your advice, five minutes. And I wrapped it in African fabric. And so when she was finished her Q&A, I just lifted the sign in front, of my, in front of my face. And I kept saying to my friend, Mary, is she looking? Is she looking? And my friend Mary's like, oh, my God, Kathy, she's looking. She's calling you up to the stage. <laughs> So I, uh, I went up and she was doing selfies and things with lots of people. But then she came over and we had a few minutes to chat and basically talked about, you know, how important it was that all of us are working in partnership and not in silos in the work that we're doing there. And it was quite um, exciting for me. But even more exciting was that then CBC uh, was there, radio was there, and they wanted to interview me. So I got interviewed on CBC Radio, and then I talked to you, and you said, this is an opportunity. You have got to use this. So we wrote up a, what do you call that when you put it in the newspaper, like a press release. Press release, thank you. You helped me write up a press release, and we sent it, and then I got interviewed. I was on the front page of the Whig Standard. I was interviewed by the Kingstonist. I was on with Wei Chen on CBC Radio. And so, uh, again, you said to me, you need to use this. So we started a GoFundMe account and raised $7,000 for the the Women's Training Center because I had had a chance to meet with Angelina Jolie for a few minutes. It's funny because we were laughing. We didn't know each other. And all I did was keep texting her, do this, do this, change this, do that, post it, link it. And, you know, it was the blind leading the blind because I'm not that you, great. No, you really did. It was amazing. Yeah, but it was really fun because every single day I would be checking it like it was my money. I'm like, we got 20 grand. And people just kept giving money. And it yeah. was really great because it was such an opportunity to – elevate it to another level. And what, at that time, um, we kind of got closer. We had a little three of us on this, what we called the board of directors, which was a little hyperbole. And I'm not good at that, but you, you know, you and Susanna were like long-term issues. And then, you know, what I really learned, I learned this thing that I, I get big ideas but I don't know how to do the day-to-day stuff like you do and Susanna, very specific. But, you know, things like you would give food at lunch and they wouldn't eat at the women because they were feeding their children. And yet they were starving because not only are these women victims of war, they're victims of rape and they have HIV generally. Uh, So they're managing a lot of issues. So that's going along 2018 You then, and I mean, you start treating this like a job. Um, You and your husband really make it like this will be our mission to give back like this. And as a couple, we'll 
do this. But, you know, to raise money, to write grant requests, to keep doing fundraisers, to frankly beg people to give you money all the time, yes. that, that was very wearing. How did you handle all that? Yeah, it. it I, I think it, it is. It's it's a lot of work, and you're right. It um, uh, people say, "Are you are you retired?" And I say, "Well, I'm I'm not working for money, but I feel like I still have, you know, a not maybe not a full time job, but close to. I guess because I I so strongly believe that, you know, we need in the world to be helping each other that to ask someone who has money. Uh, for a little bit of money to help, you know, women who don't have money and who are trying to, like you said, feed themselves and their children, educate their children, which is their number one priority. Uh, We have a number of women, like you said, and some of their children who are HIV positive. So I, I, I don't find it difficult to ask for money. And I write grant proposals regularly. And gratefully, I'm, I'm, quite successful with that. Um, but I think it's because people, you know, everybody wants to help. They, they don't always know how, but if you, if I come up to you and say, could you help and you want to help, then you're, you're, you're very interested. So it's not, um, I like that you ask because I forget and I think, Oh, I just gave. And then I'm like, Oh no, that was six months ago. And just ask, I need help for this, for the women. They had to relocate during the volcano thing. Um, yeah. So is there anything, and you don't have to come up with this if it doesn't work, but is there anything kind of funny that happened where you go, where you're put in a position where you go, I cannot believe what I'm doing either. There would be a lot of situations like that. But the one that the one that is most recent and comes to mind is in 2022, Heather and I traveled to Goma. And of course, it was still in the COVID time. It's toward the end of the pandemic. But didn't we uh, get COVID on the way over? And so we were in the DR Congo. She had COVID first. And then, of course, I got it because we were so close. And we were we were there for 10 days. So we'd spent some time being ill and then some time meeting with people outside masking and everything. But then it was time to go. And I was still, I was still testing positive for COVID. So I was trying to, if you will, manipulate the system to get us out of there because KLM had offered us, uh, first class tickets on the way back. So we were in business class on the way back and we did not want to miss that flight because that is cushy. So I was at the airport. I was at the hospital. I was get the doctor trying to get this, uh, this COVID, this negative COVID test so that I could, so that I could travel back to get the, um, the first class flight. And I was at one point I was in the airport in this little tiny room, Heather had been taken off somewhere else because she was testing fine. I was all by myself. They had taken my passport. They had taken my phone. Uh, the only, but I still had some money on me. <laughs> I was standing in there and I thought, well, if Heather never comes back, I guess I'll just go back to the hotel where I started and I have a little bit of money and I'll just have to go from there. I wasn't really worried 
uh, I knew I'd be fine, but there was a bit of a time where I was like, how did I end up in this place? (laughs) Yeah. And again, this is where I would run home and you just run toward. And I find (laughs) that very interesting. So we have to wrap this up, but I want to ask you a couple last questions. In the last while, has there been a time when you've been down and didn't think you were going to get up, like a downward facing broad? And then (laughs) what did you do to, or have you done to get back your sense of humor? So I literally was down. Last year, uh, around this time, I was riding my bike to a friend's and I fell off my bike, hit my head, had... uh, uh, have amnesia from that time with um, a brain uh, a brain bleed and a concussion. So I was quite and and spent the next weeks and couple of months not doing anything really and feeling like I might never do anything again. And then, I, but even. <laughs> Speaking of humor, even when I was in the ambulance, you know, the ambulance, and I couldn't remember anything. The ambulance driver was, says to me, do you know a Martin? And I was like, no. And then I thought, oh, my uncle Huck Martin, but he's been dead for 20 years. So I'm pretty sure they don't want me to say that. So he's like, do you know a Martin? And I said, no, I don't know a Martin. I said, why do you keep asking me that? He said, well, there's a Martin on your phone who's texting you. And I was like, oh, that's where I was going. I was going to see Martin for singing. So um, so that was kind of, I mean, that was funny in my in my own uh, in my own head. But then for the last year, I've been dealing with this concussion and, and really haven't been getting better. So I recently went to uh, see a physician in Pittsburgh And I walked in and, you know, he was asking me some questions and I said to him, you know, people say, well, you know, you're just getting older. That's why you feel like that. And I said to him, you don't fall off your bike and get old. And he said, anybody who walks into this office with blue hair, as you know, I have, he said, is not old. (laughs) So that gave me a good laugh, too. Um, but how do you navigate? Because I know how this has been an up and down process and a long time without getting any answers that were progressing. Is that where you come back to yourself? And I mean, I know you have a lot of things you do for your mental health, but that's for a goer like you who likes to go places and not you're kind of um, sidelined. It's, it's a challenge to sit there and be with that. I I have. I feel like I've I've been you know, sidelined from my own life for the last year. My, my passion as, as you know, in my work right now is in Africa. And I usually travel there at least once, sometimes twice a year. And I haven't been able to do that. Um, So it's been, you know, I, I, I said to someone the other day, you know, for years, I used to wish I was somebody else. Now I just wish I could be myself again. Mm-hmm. But I am feeling I am feeling since I did see this physician and I'm on a new protocol, I am feeling quite um, quite positive that I'm going to get better. So that's my good. Fingers are crossed. My, sister, yeah. my daughter, as you know, had a concussion for two years and people would say to her, well, you know, try to find the gift in this. And she said, 
well, it's a gift I'd like to give back. I don't want to find a gift in it because it was it was grueling to watch her walk through that. And it is a long process, which a lot of people don't understand. And it's also a long process to have to raise money and continue to care and that there isn't this sort of um, once and done kind of thing that you have been able to, you know, continue your work, continue your passion and compassion for these women and that endurance has really is a quality that you have and it's a very big gift for me as your friend it really is i look at it and i go i cannot do because if i don't get approval every five minutes i i fade away but um i wonder if we could close with this one question if you look back at that young girl who was you know trying to find her way at 15, 16 years of age, what would you tell her that you'd like her to know looking back at her now as an older woman? I would tell her to not be afraid to take, to take chances. I spent a lot of time when I was young, you know, being afraid, afraid of what people thought, afraid of looking stupid, afraid that I didn't know enough, afraid, afraid, afraid. Um, and it, it took me, you know, right through my 30s to move to to a different place. So I, I would tell her, you know, it's okay to be afraid, but courage is being afraid and stepping forward anyway. I would say find your courage. Well, that's a good place to end. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Oh, wow. Thank you, Kathy. What I heard in Kathy's chat is what I've always believed is you think you're going to go out there and give back, but you always receive more than you give. That's been my experience anyway. Every time I volunteer, I'm left wondering who is the helper and who is the helped. Before we go, remember, we want you to like us, subscribe and follow. And as Bert says, let's go back to the nursing home for the rest of my story. But you hear, you hear these rumors about being in there, that there's STDs rampant. That's a, that's a, there's, I, I don't believe it because I, first off, I think it's a lot like the urban myth that there was a rat found in a McDonald's hamburger. It was just probably one rat, one burger. <laughs> and there's only one man in those homes because all the other men are dead. There's just one guy sitting there tied into a chair. <laughs> Unless that's why they've got him tied into the chair. <laughs> anyway, I, I love telling stories in there. And uh, I was telling a story, and then one day I thought, well, we all need to be touched as we get older. We don't get touched if we don't have people around us, and we need connections. So I said, hey, now that I'm done, would anyone like a hug? And then, you know, everyone put their hands up, and I got hugs if they wanted one. And, and uh, there's this one woman at the back, Keitha, and she goes, so what's your game? <laughs> I said, well, you know, I, I come in here because um, I like to hug, and, I, you know, I think we all need a touch is essential to the human experience, and I have a bit of existential loneliness. And... Um, <laughs> And so the next week, she brings a friend, and her friend says, uh, I start to hug, and her friend goes, what the hell is she up to? <laughs> Keitha goes, apparently, she needs to be touched, and she has existential loneliness. 
And she's a downward Facing Brown